looking back, I realized that I fed my insecurities a lot, losing sight of who I really am, which led to burned out. I would say it is a failure, although there are not really like a loss because there are so much to gain lessons, painful lessons to gain from that. But I would say categorize it as a as a failure when you lose sight of who you really are, your core, only because you wanted to feed your insecurities instead of self-compassion, self-acceptance, and realizing nobody's perfect. All of us are flawed. We have imperfections. And altogether, it is beautiful. It is really a matter of embracing yourself for who you really are and who you really are is also a process and so i would say looking back those moments that season would be one of my greatest failure but also a gold mine of lessons Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future program, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Hailing from what she describes as a typical Filipino family, Lucille Digito still lives and works on the island of Cebu in the Philippines. Studying at a Catholic school, Lucille took early inspiration from St. Alphonsus de Liguori and after passing the bar, began working for the International Justice Mission as a staff attorney. Having worked at the company for nearly a decade, Lucille now leads a team of investigators, social workers and lawyers who work with local authorities to combat online sexual exploitation of children in the Philippines. Lucille was the recipient of the Women of the Future Southeast Asia Award in the Professions category in 2020. I grew up in a household of 14 people. Everybody's in the house. So it's really the very classic, close-knit Filipino family. I was born and I grew up in a small but beautiful island in the Philippines called Cebu. I don't know if you've been to Cebu, but if you have not been, just imagine summer all year long. Although that may be also applicable in, you know, the rest of of the Philippines. It's summer all all year long. So (laughs) I pretty much lived my entire life so far in my hometown here in Cebu. I went to school here. I went to university had my career and my, basically the years that I've worked, everything here in Cebu. My family's also here. So yeah, this is my hometown. (laughs) (laughs) What were you like as a student? Were you particularly dedicated? Did you enjoy studying? Oh, I loved my school life. I went to a Catholic school for grade school up to high school and as a student I was always this student who's very close to the sisters uh, who were then like running the school. I remember very well that 
I was a pretty much really diligent student back in the day. I was also active and very much engaged in extracurricular activities, uh, particularly on the artistic side, like theater, drama club, uh, writing for the school paper. And uh, every year I was also involved in the student government during that time from grade school to high school. So yeah, and in college, I went to a state university. I took up business management for four years. Apparently, it takes like longer to finish a degree in the Philippines. So four years of business management. And then right after that, I studied law for another four years before I took the bar to be a licensed attorney in the Philippines. So what got you interested in business management and law? When did that start piquing your interest, I guess? Because you were saying there was a bit more to your vocational studies and hobbies and things like that. But was it a family member that helped shape that idea for you? So to be a lawyer, I've mentioned I went to a Catholic school. And the Catholic school that I went to is Redemptorist, run by the congregation Redemptorist. And their founder was St. Alphonsus de Liguori. And in my school, like the primary school years, we studied the life of St. Alphonsus de Liguori like almost every year. And I was just fascinated that at the age of 16, St. Alphonsus had already obtained his degrees in canon law and civil law. At the age of 16, he was practically a lawyer already. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, he was a lawyer at 16, and then he became a priest. How cool was that? For me, uh, back then, it was really cool that I wanted to be a lawyer like St. Alphonsus. And so during family gatherings, um, the adults in the family would often line up the kids and ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? And of course, I said, I wanted to be a lawyer like St. Alphonsus. <laughs> um, and so that has kind of like carved into what I really wanted to be. Uh, that's why I ended up taking up law. In the Philippines, you cannot, right after high school, you cannot take up a law degree if you have not had at least a four-year or a five-year bachelor's degree course. And so I took business management because just in case, just in case I wouldn't end up studying law because it was really expensive to study law in the Philippines, at least business management will, <laughs> will, open up opportunities for me to, you know, uh, it will be easier to find a job. But right after my business school, I had an opportunity to work and send myself to law school. And so that's it. I became a lawyer. <laughs> and not just any old lawyer, you do something quite remarkable. Could you tell me more about what it is that you do now? Yes. So right after passing the bar, I immediately worked for International Justice Mission as a staff attorney. And what I really do when I got into IJM was to serve as a private prosecutor, represent victims of child trafficking, those children who have been trafficked for sex in commercial establishments like bars, brothels, and even also traffic for, for sex in the streets of Cebu City. So I represent them in court. And I did that for straight three years prosecuting these cases. And it has really been a passion of mine to use my profession to protect people who are oppressed, to use the power and protection of law for those people who seem to be outside the protection of law. And so 
when I started working at IJM, I realized that this is really what I wanted to commit my education, my profession to this cause is really also a personal passion of mine. And so I've been with IJM now for almost nine years. It feels like time just flies by so fast that it has already been almost nine years. And right now I am leading a team of investigators, social workers, lawyers who are working with local authorities to combat online sexual exploitation of children in the Philippines. Um, we commonly know as cyber sex trafficking of children. It's such an extraordinarily hard subject matter. I can only imagine what you have to see and deal with on a daily basis. Does that have a personal impact on you? And I mean, we're very much focused in this country about mental health. Do you find ways of dealing with that, I would imagine, on a daily basis? Yes. um, Handling cases involving sexual exploitation of children, these are really heavy and painful stuff where in the nature of our work, we spend hours dealing with these stories, this very graphic materials, and working with police in the investigations of these cases. It can have a toll in your mental health. We are just also blessed that IJM makes it a point and makes it a priority to take care of the team. So we have um, an in-house trauma care specialist that is a resource to us. Make sure we have sessions with her, debrief with us when we have exposure to this really graphic materials. And also we follow a very strict safeguards in interacting with these materials and these stories. So that's the professional side of taking care of our mental health. At the same time, one of the very important part of not getting overwhelmed and not getting run by the painful materials and the cases that we are handling is really my faith and how, how my faith has helped me come to face with the most painful and most unspeakable type of abuses, but still immersed with hope and thrive and grow to be more resilient, even if the work is so tough and so difficult. So yeah, mental health is very important. Overall well-being is very important because you can only serve from a place of health. Otherwise, you cannot give these children and these victims something that you are also depleted of. Across all the work that you've done to date and all the projects that you've been involved with, is there any one thing in particular that stands out for you or that you're particularly proud of? In my current work, there are a lot. And I'm really proud of being able to work with a team who are also very passionate about what we do. The nature of work that we do is we work alongside government authorities. We work with the police so that rescues will happen. We work with the government lawyers in order to prosecute these criminals and make sure they are made accountable for the abuses that they've committed. We also work with government social workers so that these children are given the right aftercare intervention and all the way up to restoration. And one thing I'm really proud of is the whole team working from day one all the way up to 
when the victim has been fully restored. And that would take years. Just the tenacity, the commitment of the team that I am part of, of the work that I am a part of, I'm really proud of that. It's not like we just come in and leave the children once they're rescued. We come in and then we journey with our survivors all the way up to restoration. So I'm very proud of the team. I'm also proud and privileged to be able to work in this project, in this type of cases. And recently, you were one of just two Filipinas recognized at the Southeast Asia Awards with the Women of the Future program. It was all held virtually this year because of the pandemic. Was it a bit surreal for you winning that award? And it was the professions category, wasn't it? Yes, um, it was very surreal. Me personally is a very private person. In fact, I am not on any social media um, because for years now, like, five years because like I said I'm a very private person but then the award really taught me something that you know sometimes when you are doing your work for a long time for years like you're very immersed into what you do and you lose sight of the impact until it is brought to platforms like that or recognized in a certain way that you would realize yes um humbly and with humility and also with just recognition of the years of work that one has done, the contribution that impacted so many lives or the impact of your work recognized in that platform. It is indeed surreal and it made me realize that there is also an opportunity to use that platform to also be voice of what you're fighting for, which could have been siloed in your own country or siloed in your own city or in your own field of work. So it was surreal, but it was also a moment of realization for me that um, just the impact of the work and the potential of even inspiring other groups, other people, or other initiatives because of what you have contributed. And how have you and your family been managing in the pandemic? I mean, I imagine it would have obviously affected your work too. Do you hope that we will take some learnings from this and as we move forward and hopefully emerge on the other side? Yes. Right now, Cebu City is one of the hot spots of COVID-19 pandemic in the Philippines. And we are still under what we call community quarantine, but essentially a lockdown because of the high number of cases. It has impacted the work in the sense that limited mobility, the partners who are in the partners, the government partners, the police, and even the social workers are frontliners during this time because they are the ones who are providing the immediate services to the community right now. And so... There are some travel restrictions, limited in mobility, and we are working from home. So in effect, it has really impacted the work that we do. But during this time, all the more that we needed to double down our efforts in rescuing more children because the lockdown are making more children more vulnerable to online sexual abuses. The online sex offenders in demand countries 
have more time on their hand and they're looking for entertainment while they're at home. While the children in the Philippines are locked down and confined in their homes together with their local traffickers because in online sexual exploitation of children in the Philippines, about 70% of the perpetrators are their own family members. And so this whole pandemic is not just impacting like the health, the, you know, the public health in general, but this has also a really real impact in children becoming more vulnerable to be abused um, during this time. With regards to my family and my local community, the resilient nature of Filipinos is really, at least in the community that I belong, very clear. It brings out creativity in people. It brings out also the generosity of people around. So this crisis brings out also the worst, but also the best in people during this time. I am hopeful that we will be able to come out of this stronger with more lessons to learn, with realizations, because we are spending more time with ourselves right now than in the past months before the lockdown. And so sometimes in the business of the world, we forget to spend time with ourselves. So when we come out of this, I hope there's more self-discovery and also profound realizations about life, about what's important and what's essential. So yeah, I know that we will all come out of this stronger and hopefully wiser and more realizations that would change the, the way we view our life and our contribution to our community. Very well said. I have some quick fire questions for you. So to start, what would you describe as your greatest success? Um, my greatest success would really be being able to do what I do now. Um, success for me is being able to contribute something that matters and it is way bigger than me and at the season of life that I am in now I realized that my education my chosen profession and also my personal passion to serve the oppressed my faith and my contribution have aligned and for me it is such a gift and I consider it a gift and at the same time you know, success that not everyone will be able to come to at that place. But I am so blessed that the years have led me to this season where all those things have aligned in one place. And that is the work that I do at IJM right now. And what would you describe as your greatest failure? Um, My greatest failure... I have lots of failure. Um, I don't know if this is um, <laughs> if this is the greatest, but I think this would be one that really stands out at this time, and particularly in my journey as a leader um, in my organization, at work, and in what I do. I think there was a time in my season as a young leader then where looking back, I realized that I fed my insecurities a lot, losing sight of who I really am. 
which led to burned out. I would say it is a failure, although there are not really like a loss because there are so much to gain lessons, painful lessons to gain from that. But I would say categorize it as a, as a failure when you lose sight of who you really are, your core, only because you wanted to feed your insecurities instead of self-compassion, self-acceptance, and realizing nobody's perfect. All of us are flawed. We have imperfections. And altogether, it is beautiful. It is really a matter of embracing yourself for who you really are. And who you really are is also a process. And so I would say looking back, those moments, that season would be one of my greatest failure, but also a gold mine of lessons. And not being too hard on yourself, right? Yes. Okay. The mantra of women of the future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? Yeah, I think this would apply both um, in my personal and professional um, life. Collaboration for me, it is a gesture of honoring the value of diversity in making impactful contribution knowing and recognizing that each one of us really brings something to the table. We have something that can build, can amplify, can multiply what another has to give. And one of the best ways that we can do that is to extend kindness and interact through the lens of kindness. Uh, Only then that we could transcend from our differences that would potentially divide us to a place where we are celebrating diversity that will strengthen us together for a common cause or common purpose that would ultimately unify us. So that is the way I look at collaboration and kindness and such a beautiful pair as I think about it. And so much, so much hope of the future would come out when collaboration and kindness would go together. Is there anything that scares you? Um, When it comes to fears, something very close and immediate would be right now that we are in the midst of pandemic, what really scares me is the possibility of losing a loved one to COVID-19. I live in a city where there are a lot of positive cases here. Also, uh, in my extended family, there are five elderly, part of the vulnerable population. And so my sister is also a frontliner. Um, There is that fear Mm. that, you know, um, but God forbid any of us would would contract the virus and then we have elderly family members at home. So that would be my immediate fear right now. But overall, I would say, I cannot say I'm old enough to be saying like quite, you know, wise things, but, (laughs) um, but I would say that fear is really what defines something as to be feared of is your perspective about 
about that specific thing. So I don't want to, I'm never the one to really identify, oh, I'm scared of this or I'm fearful of this. I always wanted to try to take a step further towards fear and find out myself if it was really indeed fearful (laughs) or scary. And sometimes most of it, when you just put one foot forward into that foggy fear, you would realize that the greater fear was just all in your in your mind until you take a step towards what you first considered fear is actually a step towards courage. So generally, I don't have thoughts of like fears right now. It's very refreshing. Feel the fear and do it anyway. I like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> What's left on your to-do list? I think um, I wanted really to be able to share my learnings, my experience to others. It's not that I have a lot that other people have not learned. No, it's not the case. But it's just the thought of being able to pay it forward, to share. So something tangible like, hopefully I'll be able to write a book on what I'm passionate about, the things I've learned through the years in my work as a lawyer, in my work in the anti-slavery movement, being able to pay it forward. So hopefully be able to write a book or teach on it or mentor or coach another person who is considering to be on this track. So I think that is one of the items in my bucket list. (laughs) Thank you so much, Lucille. It's been such a privilege talking to you and thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me because I know we've got a seven hour time difference here. So you must be going into your evening whilst I'm having my lunch, but thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kim. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Woman of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.